I had done everything possible in my life, my circumstances, other than die using drugs. I knew what happens when I did drugs. I'd never been an adult sober, and you haven't ever even tried. Well, like, what do you have to lose? Welcome back to another episode of Comeback Stories. I'm here with my man, Donnie. And today we have a very special guest, someone who is in the community that I'm living in right now in the Las Vegas area, who is really doing work to change people's lives in a tremendous way. We have a special guest today. His name is Paul Botrano. What's going on, Paul? What's going on, guys? Thanks for having me. I had to ask Paul how to pronounce his last name before we came on. And uh, he said, don't know, it's like Botrano. So pretty easy to remember, but just a little intro on Paul. I met Paul through the people that I know at Gowden Ford. Paul is currently with Freedom House and Freedom Behavioral Health, and he also works as a housing director at Crossroads of Southern Nevada, and he also works with the Shine a Light, which I got to go on a tour with him, and I don't want to get too far into that yet, but just the intro of Paul and what he's doing in the community is an amazing thing. And we just want to jump right in here on Comeback Story. So, Paul, tell us a little bit of what growing up for you was like. Volatile, I would say. So my mom had the same disease that I have. My mom's a drug addict, alcoholic. She was addicted to crack cocaine. She was a prostitute. So I moved a lot. I, I remember we used to do this little triangle between Vegas and Arizona and Utah like every six months. And then like when we would find like houses out here or people that would take us in, I would move like every six months to a year while I was with her. And then at eight years old, my grandparents essentially put me with a different family and my mom would sign off temporary custody agreements. So I could only stay in these places for a year at a time before my mom lost custody. Their intention was she's going to get clean one day, she's going to get her shit together and then you can go home. And that never came to fruition when I was a child. So every year I would end up moving family to family schools. I moved schools a lot in elementary school. But it was a bumpy ride. And to say all that, though, I always like to predicate. I was happy as a kid, and I don't know why. I, I've talked to a few people about all this. but Seemingly, like I had some really dark moments. But the majority of the time, I was very positive. I was very upbeat. I was, I was in the theater, so I was always the center of the show, the center of attention. I was still happy in the midst of all of it. So the dichotomy there would be like, my home life was very volatile. However, like my school life, my social life, I always seemed to be very comfortable. That's amazing how you said that you, you didn't really know that not know that they were poor until they maybe look back on their lives and realize, wow, like things are really like that. But we don't really think of that until we attach a, a certain perspective to it. And for you to think like that and to still have joy in your life, despite those elements that were there is, uh, is pretty crazy. Uh, what do you think that your first early memory of pain was? I feel like I maybe could guess from some of the things that may have happened, but what was it to you? I don't know if it's my earliest memory, but one of the most defining things for me that is actually, it was a paradigm shift for me that I still hold on to till today. And my mom would get sober for a little bit and she'd come back and I'd go and live with her for two or three months at a time. And then she'd relapse or she'd disappear and my grandparents would find me. And I remember I was constantly excited about mom coming home, constantly got my hopes up, constantly was looking forward to it. And then when she would leave or she would relapse, like 
I would fall apart and get very emotional about it. And then I would almost have to recover from that emotional relapse. And I remember the last time, so she took a year chip in this meeting and I got up in front of the meeting and I cried and I was excited that my mom's getting my mom back and we left the meeting and then we drove straight to the dealer's house from the meeting after she took her year chip. And I basically grew up in the dealer's house. So I knew exactly where we were going. And I had this thought and I was like, what am I pouring all this emotion into things that I can't control into? What am I pouring all of this emotion when it's not going to matter a week from now, a month from now, a year from now? And I went through a really dark period of time accepting that. But what came out of that was not investing so much drama or such highs and such lows into things and just riding the wave of understanding that Nothing in my life is going to affect me forever. There's no singular situation that will have such an impact that I'll be dealing with for the rest of my life. And so being able to take any kind of change or any kind of down or up uh, has been very linear for me because I just accept the fact that in a week from now, in a month from now, in a year from now, like it probably won't be as important as it is at the moment. Mm. It sounds to me like you learned the importance of how temporary things can be early on, albeit it probably wasn't the most uh, comfortable lesson or comfortable teacher, uh, knowing that you had to learn that from your mom. But learning that is very valuable. But do you think maybe that experience with your mom maybe caused you to not trust people or look at people a certain way? Do you think it impacted you and you took that experience as you grew up? It was never about trust. And again, here's some weird dichotomy, right? Like I've always had that principle of I'll trust you until you give me a reason not to. So it never ruined that. What it did though was is it affected my ability to make real connections for years. And I tell people like even into having my first kid, uh, the first six months I spent waiting for the other shoe to drop. I didn't really connect. It didn't feel like this was my son. It felt like it was a baby I was taking care of. And I was pretty deep in the recovery at this point. And that's when I started having some realizations about the trauma associated with what I had developed over the years about it takes me a long while to develop real relations with people due to that experience. And it's not for lack of trust. Trust is not the issue at hand. Really what it is, I'm just on guard Almost now, it's almost ingrained that it's not a choice. And even with my second kid, it wasn't as long, but it was the same process. And over time, I've gotten better at it. I think now that I'm aware of it, which, as we know, the driving principle, once I acknowledge there's a problem, then I can actually face the problem. So I think, you know, that was probably the biggest outcome of what happened with her was this inability to automatically develop relationships with people. Who would you say was um, your first teacher growing up? It could be, you know, a good teacher or a bad teacher, but somebody that may have shaped some of your early habits or early thought processes. Like, who would you say impacted you or taught you in that way the most? Well, absent of my mom, I lived with a a foster family for a year that uh, they showed me the other side. Like, they were very well put together. He worked for the city. She was a accomplished saleswomen and they they're the ones that got me into little league they're the ones that taught me how to ski they were the ones that first took me to disney and i often wonder if that perspective of being you know hopelessly happy as a child would not have come about had i not been with them and got to see that there's always another side to things. there's always and they taught me a lot of coping mechanisms because that was the first family i lived with when my grandparents pulled me away and my mom was 
very aggressive about it, very defensive about it. They, she would call them and threaten them and, and they would deal with it and they'd walk me through it and they'd explain it to me. And I'm fifth grade. And these are like much bigger conversations than a fifth grader should really even be able to comprehend. But they gave me that balance of seeing the whole picture instead of just being in the middle of this picture. And I think that had the most impact for me still to this day to be able to see a whole picture perspective and not just my side of the story. It's amazing. I hear a lot of contrast where I always say contrast can be our teacher or contrast gives us perspective where it isn't just one sided. It is, it wasn't just fixed in one way where you actually got to see another perspective, which ultimately changed and is changing the way that you see the world even to this day. Yeah. It's fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about like your bottom? We've got, you got two other recovering addicts, alcoholics on the show with you. Can you talk about the bottom is so important for all of our stories, whether you're in recovery or not, but can you just walk us through what that, what led to it and then what it was for you? So one, and not to dismiss what you're seeing, because I'm completely in the same belief system as you are. The bottom defines us. It defines really the integrity of our pursuit. But I, what I've learned is that every bottom has a trap door, right? So I, my bottom started years before I got sober. And what ends up happening is, so I, I find heroin, I'm 18 years old. And this, this friend of ours walks in and she's like, hey, I have opium. And at that point in time, I'm trying anything that walks through the front door. And we're like, yeah, let's do some opium. Little did we know that it was heroin. and We were paying 800% markup on a $10 bag. We're paying $80. <laughs> and uh, next thing you know, from 18 to 27 years old, I'm doing heroin. And uh, I end up hitting the streets at 24. It was like February of 2012. And so what my bottom was... For the first time in my life, they weren't letting me couch surf. For the first time in my life, my grandparents weren't letting me in the house. My mom was never an option, but all these other families that I had lived with would take me in until I burned them and they'd kick me out. But now I'm outside and, and Darren and I were chatting right before you jumped on about how hot it is in Vegas. So now I'm outside in a hundred plus degree weather in the middle of the heat with a, with a heroin addiction where your body temperature feels like it's already running hotter than the weather is outside. And and I don't know where to go. And I spent quite some time, I would walk up and down the city. And I don't know if you guys are too familiar with the city, but I would literally walk from Henderson to uh, Summerlin every couple of weeks. And I would camp along the way and just panhandle in front of stores. And so one day, this was before I found the tunnels, but one day I, I always had this narrative in my head, you know what I mean? You're going to get out of this, you're going to get out of this, it's just a matter of time. And I go and I camp behind this, like in the shopping centers, they have the dumpsters. The dumpsters have this wall that surrounds them and they can have three or four dumpsters in it. So I set it up and I pushed all the dumpsters so I could sleep behind all the dumpsters so that if the store owners came out, to throw their trash away, they wouldn't see me sleeping behind the dumpsters in this little area. And it just starts pouring rain. And I wake up and all my shit's wet and I'm soaking wet and I grab what I can grab and I push the dumpsters out of the way and I walk into the Walmart and Walmart kicks me out. And I walk into the McDonald's kicks me out. And I walk into four or five more stores. And nobody's letting me come in. Then I would try to sit in front and they're like, bro, we told you, you got to go. And I remember I walk off the parking lot and I thought, I have nowhere to fucking go. This is 
very real. I have nowhere to go. And I think that's when my bottom starts. Now, I, like I said, that's June of 2000, no, February of 2012. I didn't make it out until August of 2014. So that's where my bottom started. But what happens once I'm there is I just kept discovering trapdoors. Wow. So you were told the, the first thing you heard was you have nowhere to go. Where did you go? What was, you know, if that was the story or that was what you heard, where did that lead you? That day, I don't know that I can answer the question. I'm sure I got high and fell asleep behind some source. Just to numb the, the moment. I, where it leads eventually, though, is to the flood drains in Las Vegas. So there's about 600 miles of flood drains out here. And they all run from the mountains on the east to the mountains on the west and north and south and then everywhere in between. And the idea is if it's raining in the mountains, it'll never make it to town because it's all going under the city. And I get invited to go underground. And at this point, I had been above ground, I don't know, about six months just trying to find somewhere comfortable to lay my head. And I go down there and as a Vegas native, as a Vegas drug addict, and as a Vegas homeless person, like I had heard everything there was to hear about these flood channels, and I, but I'd never been. There. And uh, they invite me down, and there's mattresses, and, and there's they got like this fire pit. You could tell everybody had their own little camp, and they're all sitting around the fire drinking Bud Light. And it's and I'm like, man, I have arrived. And I'm thinking this is it. This is the mecca of being able to live this unaccountable lifestyle. Nobody's going to bother me down here. Nobody's going to mess with my shit. Like I finally found the place. It's like Neverland. Finally, Peter Pan showed up and carried me to Neverland. And, uh, I, I ended up living under there for two years. It's about two and a half. I was homeless. To be honest with you, I'm not an accurate reporter on my time frames. Heron will have that effect on you. Same with meth. You know, I'll tell people, yeah, I was up for a couple of days. And they're like, you were up for a couple of months, but that's okay. And uh, like time doesn't really make sense to me between February of 2012 and August of 2014. But I go down there and I just buy in. I buy into the lifestyle. And I you know, when I moved into that tunnel, there was about 15 other people that lived down there. A few of them were old timers who'd been on the streets for about 10 years, living a very innocent, homeless, vagabond life. They were alcoholics, garden variety drunks, and in walks this heroin addict, meth addict kid that had bright ideas. I ended up chasing them all out, and I ended up going down there and I'm selling dope through the drains from underground so that nobody could see who the dope man was. They're passing money through the drains while I'm passing drugs back. and. I end up mapping the whole south side of town out with a little bicycle and a flashlight strapped in the front of it. And I get super paranoid because that's the effect methamphetamine has. So I'm hiding drugs and money throughout miles and miles of tunnel channels so that if I ever have to leave a tunnel to go above ground and I get stopped by the cops, I have nothing on me. And I could go in at these different entrance points throughout that side of town and there would be drugs and money waiting for me. And Eventually, I only came up to eat and to pick up drugs. And that was it. The rest of the time I spent underground with a flashlight on my head, it was pure insanity, pure insanity. And it seems foreign today to think about the headspace that I was in then. But we always talk about there's this metaphor, right? There's the good wolf and the bad wolf. Whichever one you feed the most will win. And I remember I always had this thought in my head, like, you were not meant for this, man. You're college educated. You did well in school. Look at what you did. You pulled yourself out of your, that lifestyle with your mom. You stayed hot. What are you doing? 
like, how did you make it here? And I, and I would always tell myself that and one day, and I want to say it was about 60, 90 days before I got out. I'm, I'm having that narrative that good wolf is talking to me and, and this much louder voice comes in and goes, stop fooling yourself, man. You're done. You were going to die under Las Vegas with a needle in your arm. And uh, there was like this sense of relief. Once I finally admitted, you're done, bro. You're going to be a heroin addict for the rest of your life and you will die with a needle in your arm. I was relieved. I was relieved at the idea that I didn't have to lie to myself anymore, but this was it. This was what I was going to do. And like I said, a couple months later, I always say two cops and a cricket saved my life. I had this girlfriend that had swung a two by four in my head. And that was like, really, that wasn't in my perfect relationship column. I didn't really appreciate having a two by four swung in my head. So I had this great grand plan. I was going to get away. I was going to leave her behind. She was the problem. People, places, she was the problem. This tunnel is the problem. Henderson police is the problem. So I'm going to go and the county's jurisdiction to a whole different tunnel, and she's not going to know where I'm at. I plotted this thing out. I was waiting for her to fall asleep. This was the goal. I had to wait for her to fall asleep, and I was going to grab my shit. I was going to go MIA on her. And I waited for her to fall asleep for, I don't know, five days before she finally went out. And so she passes out, and now that insanity, the obsession of the mind wakes up. And I had been sitting on this 40 bag of heroin for that entire time. Because I didn't want to share it. So she finally goes to sleep. And before I pack my stuff up, I'm going to do this heroin before she gets, or before I leave. So I have this whole ritual. I start laying it all out on my lap. And I got my headlight on. And this, this big black cricket just comes hopping in my line of sight. And I see it like out of my peripheral. And it jumps into the light in the flashlight. I look up. And naturally, I start having a conversation with the cricket. Because why wouldn't I? And I don't really remember what the cricket said. But I do remember that I told the cricket not to do it. I was like, don't you do it. And the cricket didn't listen and it jumps right up in my face. And I spill all the heroin in my lap. Now I'm hot. Instant resentment. The cricket's got to die. So I gather all the heroin I got. I put it back in my thing. I start hunting the cricket down. And I spend two hours in an echoing tunnel of concrete, pitch black, trying to find this little black fucking cricket, which is like an impossible task. Eventually I give up, never found the cricket gets to live. Now I gotta, I gotta go. I gotta go. The alarms are going off. She's going to wake up. I gotta, I gotta do the shot of heroin and I gotta go. And so I start to walk back to the bed and as bright as I sit down, these two bright flashlights hit the end of the tunnel and I knew that they were the police. So I lay down, I act like I'm sleeping. They walk up on us. She's naked. I'm laying in bed next to her. They ask me, what's your name? Do you have any warrants? And I said, you know, I don't have any warrants. And uh, they were like, how long would it take you to get out of here? The city's going to come down and clean up. I said, it'll take us two minutes. So they walk out the south end. So I grab all my shit. Now, mind you, I've spent three years, <laughs> give or take, learning these tunnels, selling drugs out of these drains. I know every turn, every nook, every cranny. I taught myself how to travel underground without a light just in case anybody was ever chasing me. So it, my moment has arrived. This is it. All these years of training and I'm going to be able to escape from the police. And I start running out of the north end of the tunnel. And again, the insanity of the mind. You need to get high. 
You need to get high. You need to get high. You've been waiting forever to do this fucking heroin. You need to get high. And I ruined the opportunity. I run out the one end of the tunnel and I have three options. I can go right into one set of drains, left into another set of drains, or I can go up into Lowe's where they have a bathroom and I can get high. And I chose the obvious fucking choice for a drug addict. I climb the ladder, I walk into Lowe's, I do the heroin, I walk out, the police roll up on me and they're like, what happened? You said you were going to leave. And I said, I did leave. And he goes, well, you also said you don't have any warrants. I said, I don't have any warrants. He goes, man, you got warrants in three jurisdictions. I go, oh shit, I got warrants in other places than Henderson too? Wasn't the right answer. <laughs> they put me in jail and thus started this journey. Wow. Amazing. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask about your bottom and then the biggest thing holding you back. So when you look back and you had the good wolf yeah, planting these seeds and, and maybe it's intuition or your gut wisdom, but what was that? What was the biggest thing holding you back? So a lot of what I think I pass on in messaging with Shine a Light is because it was true. And and what I realized was I had built this comfort zone and I knew it and nobody could take it from me. And I had these things that I had collected and I had these routines that I had grown comfortable with. And I think the idea of leaving that behind to try something that I wasn't even sure I would be able to accomplish. I don't know if I'm going to be able to stay sober. I don't know that I'm going to be able to go out there and pay for rent and get a job and show up on time and never do drugs again. And I just didn't have faith that I was even capable of doing that anymore. And if I tried and failed, I'd have to start all over at being homeless again. And it just felt easier to just keep doing what was comfortable. So what do you, what would you say the story is? We always say that the only story that matters is the one you tell yourself. What was the story that you had to stop telling yourself so you could start to write the comeback? That I had never actually tried. Contempt prior to investigation. I had these ideas of what it would look like. But the reality of it is I knew the story, how it would play out if I used drugs. I had done everything possible in my life, in my circumstances, other than die using drugs. I knew what happens when I did drugs. I'd never been an adult sober. And you have never even tried. Well, like, what do you have to lose? Vegas ain't going nowhere. Them heroin dealers ain't going nowhere. Them tunnels ain't going nowhere. I could literally wake up at 2 a.m., walk out, and take 10 minutes to find a new dealer, worst case scenario. Why don't you try? I grew up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I told you 12 stuff. I grew up in 12 stuff. And I told you that I, my mom, I would go to meetings, and I'd go to all these things. I knew the lingo. I knew the language. I knew the preaching. I, and I built this resentment. And I built this resentment against all of it because she was the best example of the 11th tradition that I had. She did not lead by example. She just didn't. It was very much promotion and not attraction. She would promote to the world that she was in this thing and she would never just walk the walk. And so I walk into my first 12-step meeting and of course I got my hoodie up and I'm in the back seat of the room and I'm head is screaming at me, what are we doing in this room again? What are we doing in this room again? And this guy says, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Hi, my name is Steve and I'm an alcoholic. And that's how he opened his share. And I just remember I looked up and I thought, man, wouldn't that be cool to have this unapologetic relationship with God? I can't even pray in a dark room by myself without feeling like an idiot. 
And this dude is in a room with 50 people before he even says his name. He thanks God three times. Every day he would do this shit. And what I realized was when he told his story and when everybody else told his story, I relate to all of those stories. And I wasn't even willing to give this shit a try. And and I think the story that I had to start telling myself was, you don't have any evidence that this won't work. But you have plenty of evidence that the other shit wasn't. We are thankful that you threw yourself into the process today because you have you know, changed a lot of people's lives. You've definitely helped transform uh, my perspective as well. I want you to tell people about how you got involved with uh, Freedom House and Shine a Light and, you know, Crossroads of Nevada. Like, how did you get involved with being of service to be the utmost? This is you're doing real life work and in the trenches every day. So I go through drug court changed my life. I'm a huge advocate of specialty courts because somebody like me, the few moments in time that I thought about leaving, it was the the prison or the, excuse me, I didn't have prison time. I had a year dead time in county jail, which is even worse than what I told. (laughs) The the sentence just kept running through my head and I was like, man, you might as well just finish. It's better than being inside and doing it. Just do it. So like, and they provided a lot of tools. They provided case management and therapy and they accountability and they provided the ID, the money for rent for the first month. There was all these things that it just was like, well, with it. But I'm working at a car wash, which is actually a funny story because the car wash was right above the tunnel that I lived in. And I only got the job there because I couldn't find another job. And when I was homeless, the, the manager used to tell me like, hey, if you ever want to get your shit together, I'll give you a job. And so finally, one day out of desperation, I went there and I get the job. And I'm working there for about 20 plus months. Just short of two years and a friend of mine walks up and says, hey, you know, so Freedom House had already been around as like a 60 bed sober living program. So it's not like your traditional 12 guys in a house, everybody holds each other accountable. There's structure to it. There's programming to it. But um, they wanted to open up an inpatient side. My wife's eight months pregnant and my job's dictated on the weather and how many cars show up. And they were like, you should go apply for this job. And so I just, I go and I get this little $9 an hour job working graveyard at Freedom House. And through a series of events and a little bit of my history and a little bit of my schooling and just a lot of willingness to lay myself out there and show what it is that I had to offer. I kept getting these opportunities to move up through the ranks. And uh, next thing I'm, you know, working days and I'm a case manager and then I'm the lead case manager. And then I'm, Two and a half years into it, I become the program director. It was like it, it all went really quickly. And then, so the founder of Freedom House tells me about Crossroads and they need some help. And they were it was during a period of time when they had only been open for a year and they needed some structure and they needed some programming. I just spent the last two years learning everything about all the requirements for all these licenses, and everything that we have to do to maintain the integrity of these housing units for the state. And uh, so they asked me to come on part time to help them figure out how to do this. And we're 15 months into that little part time temporary gig and it's become a full time second job. And uh, shine a light was happenstance, man, that, uh, this guy named Matt O'Brien discovered the tunnels. He was an author and he discovered the tunnels because he wanted to write a piece on this guy that had murdered his family and went underground to escape the police dragnet. 
And so he went to go experience what that guy experienced and discovered that people lived underground. And I want to say this was in like 2008, 2009. And uh, he creates this little community program called Shine Light. Matt's the only guy in Shine Light. What Matt did was he would go out and visit with these guys every so often and just make friends. And whenever they needed anything, he would go and turn around to his people and he would say, hey, this is what we need or you know where we can house this guy or are there any programs? And he started to learn a little bit about the safety net. Matt wants to write another book about people that made it out of the tunnels and somebody pointed them in my direction. We get to talking and I was like, I'd love to be able to get back to you. It's one of my driving principles in, in this thing that I do. And I can't think of a better type of like ninth step and 12th step in my life than to be able to go back underground and be a part of the solution. And that's, that's interesting that you say that I'm moving to San Salvador in three months and I need to give this to somebody. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so he, he spends two weekends and he takes me out to these tunnels and the next thing he goes to San Salvador and uh, I'm wandering around Vegas with a backpack and a flashlight, almost as if I had relapsed and went back to this old life, walking through tunnels and they have no idea what it is that I'm going to do. I have no idea. Like this guy just hands me an idea that's it's slightly underdeveloped, but it was as developed as Matt wanted it to be. And my brain just starts racing. Like we should be the ones getting them into housing. We should be the ones case managing them. We should be the ones providing funds, not relying on the people around us. But if we are the direct connection too, and I, I can go on a rant with this, but a lot of the social service programs out here, the idea is that, hey, I want help. Cool. Let me put your name on a two-year wait list. So my whole goal was is we have all these internal resources in this little fight club of ours. We know how to help people instantaneously, not to mention the connections I have directly with treatment and housing programs that are established. There's no reason that we can't provide instant placement with access to treatment and housing and supersede the social service net and just bring them directly into our solution. And that's the foundation that we built it on is the day you tell me you're ready, I'm taking you with me. No sooner, no pressure. If if I ask you what your name is and you tell me your name is Joker, then I know you as Joker until you're ready to enter one of my programs, right? And it creates that human element. Now, Shine Light's got 30 or 40 volunteers that go out every week. In total, our volunteer list is about 150 people. Out of that, we have 10 leads that lead groups. And out of those 10 leads, at least half of them are people that we pulled out of the tunnel. And we pulled a total of about 95 people to date from underground and placed them into treatment or housing. It's, it's amazing to realize, like, coming, I know coming out of that tunnel just realizing that you're just trying to make things, make ends meet and just try to keep the right thing going and then realizing that you have so much more power in you to serve and to impact other lives than you originally thought. Uh, I, I know I felt the same way, Donnie, I'm sure you did too when we got sober. It's just like you think like, oh man, we just, here we go. We just manage this and keep getting by but we come to realize that we have so much more to offer and to almost to the point where it scares us. And I'm grateful to you for stepping into that power and realizing that, you know, you didn't have to be in self-pity or feeling useless for your entire life. Like that feeling went away because you did the work and now other people can benefit from that. Yeah, even me, like going down there in those tunnels with you, feeling that water 
getting my socks and shoes and just seeing the state that that people were in was something that really opened my eyes to somebody that really doesn't have a lot to complain about or doesn't have much suffering in their life anymore. So I'm just grateful that you are doing what you're doing. And um, I know along the way, our definitions of gratitude change a lot. I know it was money at one point or women, da, 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 but what do you think you're most grateful for today? Most grateful for it is the fact that I have the family, a constant family. Like I last night, even we got a some new turf put in our backyard. It was all dirt and ugliness. We put some like greenery and this little mini putting course, and my kids are out there laughing. And my twelve-year-old sitting in a room playing a banjo, singing something a cappella, and it sounds like shit, but he's happy. With me. <laughs> my my four-year-old and my two-year-old are in the backyard rolling around in the turf and they're just giggling. And my wife looks at me and she goes, it sounds like our kids are happy. And, and I just had a moment where I realized that's something that I never had, which again, like never really bothered me as a child, but I can tell you that I was always motivated to provide it. Thought that I had lost the ability to provide it. And yet here I am in the middle of God's grace and I'm capable of doing this with such little effort. And all of this, like, all of this comes with such little effort. Like from an outsider's perspective, when I think they see the amount of time or the amount of works, the phone calls or the principles or the readings and the night step and the rah, da, 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 da. And they're like, how do you, do? oh my God. And you just think it's really, it really just, that's the gift is the effortless motion in which when you practice this thing in its full effect, it just flows. There's no forcing it. And you're right, man. The first year, everything's overwhelming. I literally went from living into the dark where I would walk in the bathroom and turn the light off to go to the bathroom because it was, everything was overwhelming to like, now I oversee 260 clients a day and, and 60 employees and three programs. And, and there's less effort in that than there was in my first year of just not going crazy. And that's not me. That has nothing to do with me. There was no original thought. I had no brilliant ideas. I didn't even make up shine light. I didn't cross it. Everything was just, here's what's next. And okay, cool. That's what we're doing. That's probably the thing I'm the most grateful for too, is the ability to like face life on life's terms without having to overthink it. And I realized that anytime I feel stressed out, it's because I'm choosing that level of distraction. And that's the greatest lesson I think I've learned in recovery. And as I get to choose my own level of distraction, I want this to be important. It can be important. And if I want to let it go. Yeah, I feel like the more we stay in the work, whatever that work is for us, as we progress or evolve as humans, the, the, the better decisions that we make, the power of choice that we have, we're able to actually realign our actions with our values. And that's power to be able to choose, to be able to choose how to respond in love and not react out of fear. Yeah, you nailed it. it. What would you say? Go ahead. Say it real quick. I love that you said that because again, at first glance, you look at it and you think powerless and very little do you know, if you just keep reading by the very next step is going to give you your power back. It's that quick, but like you have to do the work to really understand what it is they're doing for you. I love that you said that because I feel like that's a message that gets lost. No, I'm not powerless forever. I'm literally powerless between one and two. And then all of a sudden, I'm given that back. Yeah, it's like powerless over the things we can't control. And there's a whole hell of a lot of strength and freedom in that and awareness. And I was thinking the other day that 
just how my addiction saved my life. And I'm like, that's going to be a book title. I'm going to write that book. I feel like my addiction saved my life. And it almost killed me. I overdosed once, Darren overdosed. We've talked about that. But it saved my life in terms of living a life of purpose, of meaning, and not just living what society says is a happy, successful, materialistic life, but to actually live. So what would you say? Let's say you get one 140-character text to send to the younger version of yourself, the one that was struggling. What would you say? If you can keep it to 140, but if you got to go over, it's all good. I don't even think I have to do that. It's It'll all be worth it. It'll all be worth it. Like you just said it and I can't say that I would ever want to change anything. The reality of it is that I was selfish in my way of thinking. My goals were very self-centered. My perspective was very cut off from the world. I had this inability to build relationships with people. I would never have been comfortable being uncomfortable had I got what I wanted. And I might've had this little cute little life and gone to school and did these things that I wanted to do. And but what I have today, the kids that, that I look at in my backyard, the wife that I have, it's like the synergy between her and I is, I've never shared that with a singular human being in my entire life. And trust me, that was my most accomplished 13th step. That was not supposed to work out the way that it worked out. And meanwhile, something, God intervened and allowed us to, to be what it is that we are. I think I would just tell myself, this is all going to be worth it. This is just stay the course. That and maybe more presence of God in my mind. God never lived. I never had foresight when it came to God. It was always in retrospect. It was never until I stopped, took a breath, and looked behind me that I realized that God was humble enough to come to me in the form of a cricket to distract me long enough to get caught up and change my life. But I could never see that. I never trusted that. I never had any type of faith in anything other than my own. So maybe a little bit about have faith. <laughs> but I don't know that I would tell myself anything to deter the path. What I have today is more gratifying than anything I ever thought that I was capable of doing in my selfish little mindset. Humility is the greatest gift I ever received. Let's say we're talking to somebody that knows what may be holding them back and doesn't know what to do about it. Like they're in that situation, they have the awareness, but as far as going forward from that point, what advice would you give to that person? I do this on a daily basis. And I've almost become numb to this, but I, like I said, here in this building that I'm sitting in, I have a hundred clients to the left of me in a hallway right now. And 70% of them don't even know what the fuck they want to do. They don't know why they're here. Most of them are homeless. Most of them literally walked in the building because it's three hots and a cop for 90 days and we'll do what you tell me to do. And then these moments arise where they have that, that wolf comes back in and tells them what you're done. And it's my job to build the relationships with these guys on a level that instead of them disappearing into the night, they trust me enough to walk in and say something along the lines of, I don't know if I want to do this. My head's really loud. And they, they tell themselves and they try to sell me a lie that we both lived and walked through. And the only advice that I ever have, again, based on my own experience with me, is you've never tried this. What do you have to lose? Trust me, the strip ain't going nowhere. You can drink 24 hours a day for the rest of your life if you choose not to do this. But if you've never tried it, what are you really balancing this in? And, and I get very raw with them. I, I don't know. I, sometimes I feel like I might be like a dick, excuse my language. But I tell them, I go, cool. So you want to go back to prison? You want to go back to living on the streets? And, and I get it. That makes sense. It's easy. It's all good. Or... 
you could actually do something with your life and realize like right now you're within reach rewriting the entire history. And a lot of times, like as long as it's a personal approach and it's something where I'm looking them in the eye, they understand that really what's on the table is something they've never experienced. And it doesn't work all the time. It doesn't work a majority of the time. I think as men in recovery, we know like we are the two percenters, but the people it works in. Uh, I'll tell a quick story. I had a guy, he was in a van. We were transporting him. He sees his ex-wife who he got arrested and put into a program, jumps out of a moving van to run up on her and confront her about because she was with another dude and he didn't know that the relationship was over because he got arrested and went to treatment and uh, we get him back in the van and we get him back to freedom house and we just talk we talk for a couple hours his head's racing fuck that that's my wife and she's in my apartment and she had and i go what has that ever given you bro that gave you a three-year prison sentence over your head and a drug addiction that you've never known how to get out of that made you so insane that you had to jump out of a moving van. Don't you want freedom from not having to jump out of a moving van for anybody? And uh, that dude just celebrated five years of sobriety and is the primary player in my alumni groups. And, and he's the 2%. I understand that. But that conversation alone got him to understand. I don't want to feel so compelled to chase my insanity anymore. And I don't want relief from my insanity. I need freedom. From this insanity. And I know that's convoluted and I know it's verbose. And most of my answers are because I don't know if this is a simple alphabet ABC type response. There's layers upon layers of understanding that my disease is the only disease that convinces myself that I have to kill myself. And at the same time, I tell myself that's not even what I'm doing. I'm not killing myself. I'm living my best life. So I think the approach is to teach people that there's a better life to live. Trust me. There's a better life to live. If you've never tried that approach. Why not? You have nothing to lose. None of this is going anywhere. If you decide at the end of all this that you want to go back, it's still going to be there. But if you don't do this and you go back out and you decide you want to try this, you may not make it back. Epic story, man. Who would you say for you, we always give love to the people that were always in our corner or really woke us up or always supported us. But who would you say is that one person that gets your comeback story shout out. Jeff Iverson is his name. He's the founder of Crossroads and Freedom House. He is an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. You know, I think so high of myself, and yet when I'm in circles of people, and I have the social anxiety, and I don't feel like I fit in, and I know what I'm capable of, and behind, in the back of my mind, that little quiet voice, but that much louder voice, that alcoholic mindset, is always beating me back with a stick. And I think it says it in the 12 and 12, like we will learn that these are nothing but boogeymen. And I'm paraphrasing, but it's such a beautiful line where it talks about, you know, fear will tell you this, and but we learn that's nothing but a boogeyman. And uh, Jeff empowered me to fill the shoes that like, I don't know that I would have ever had the ability to do. My sponsor, who's a garden variety drunk Marine, he taught me this program in a way I had never heard of. So he put me on a platform. And what Jeff did was empower me to fill the shoes that I don't know that I would have ever been able to do without a little bit of handholding. And he did it in such a way that was graceful and it was forgiving. And I've made a lot of mistakes, but I'm not sitting in this chair talking to you people had Jeff not taken that chance on me and literally allowed me to fail with grace. Yeah, I mean, I met a shout to Jeff for sure. Uh, I had the opportunity of meeting him as well. Just through a couple hours of being around him, he 
poured a lot into me and that he had the impact on you that he did. And I'm just grateful to have you here today, man. I feel like you're just the epitome of, of, of a comeback story. Here you are in the community that I'm living in doing some of the best work for people that are suffering that you know, I've ever had the opportunity to see. So I'm thankful for you, the journey that you're on journey that you're staying on and the work that you're staying in man so just thank you very much for, for joining us today no thank you really i just appreciate it i wish i could take credit for all this remember my greatest plan was to escape the tunnels and god's sick joke was to keep me in them so like you just buy into this and trust that if you do the work that's laid out at your feet like something's gonna happen that was greater than anything you could have ever imagined I'm just grateful that I gave it. I was patient enough. I sat on my hands long enough to allow that you know, materialize around me. Yeah, Paul, I want to acknowledge you too. And your comeback is definitely one for the ages. When I hear how you show up and be of service, it's stories like yours and hearing the work you're in inspires me and calls me to do more. And I think the true service is doing things when it's inconvenient. And I think a lot of what you're doing and, and stepping into those tunnels and Darren was sharing his experience, that doesn't sound very convenient. And honestly, it sometimes makes the service I'm doing seem like I, I, I got to do more because that's, that's inconvenience. But I can see what it's giving you. I can see the life and the joy that you have. And you said the word trust many times and just being able to trust God and trust the process and have a perspective that it, to be able to connect the dots and that it all makes sense. And it's... All of that has led us to, to this beautiful moment to talk about carrying the message, carry the message to talk about freedom, to remind others that there's a way out. If us three found a way out. Anybody can do it. So thank you, man. No, thank you. Appreciate you, man. Thank you all for joining us on Comeback Stories. We'll catch y'all next week. We're out. Peace. This is what I represent. Staying true till I'm six down. It might take a little bit, okay. but every king's gonna get crowned. 